This morning's scripture reading is from 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that they did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. And, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because he shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practice lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or know him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sitting, for God's seeds abides in him, and he cannot keep on sitting because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he the one who does uh, not love his brother. The word of the Lord. Good morning. It's a pleasure to see you all again. I've been traveling for work and with my family the last couple of weeks. I feel like I've been gone a lot longer than it really is. Um, managed to uh, avoid the ice storm in Texas by being stranded in San Diego. It was a real hardship. I'm <laughs> still, still recovering. Um, but it's a true blessing to, to be able to, to work and to take my family on some of these work trips. And it's a, a blessing indeed. And in this season of my life, I'm, I'm blessed that I get to spend the majority of time most every day with my children. For the first 20 of the 32 years that I've been a parent, that wasn't the norm for me. But there's a, there's a paradox to being a child, I've discovered, especially being cramped in a small room for two weeks with my four children. Um, there's a paradox, right? On, on the one hand, children want to grow up. They want their freedom. They want to be able to do things. They don't understand why it is their parents um, don't let them do things or have planned activities for them, right? Because children see adults as is having more freedom and more control over their lives. And they desire to have these things for themselves. But on the other hand, childhood can be a time of, of great insecurity, uncertainty, and dependence, where, where children in this context of limited control over their lives and, and being subject to the decisions and the actions of others can, can create a lot of tension. Well, so much of, of every aspect of our makeup as, as human beings has to do with, with who our parents are. 
And it's a providence of God that we don't get to choose our parents. God chooses them for us. And, and we can't avoid inheriting many of the traits of our mothers and fathers. Our likeness to our parents is, in some sense, proof of our relationship. Well, as children grow and develop this desire to differentiate themselves from their parents and to develop their own unique personalities, their own interests, their own values, it's a, it's a normal part of developing a sense of self. Well, I'm particularly fond of a set of commercials from the progressive insurance company. My wife can't understand why I, I laugh at every single one of them. They have a series of commercials that, that targets young homeowners. And the premise of this, these commercials is that through homeownership, young homeowners are at risk of becoming more like their parents. And so in the commercial, there's this uh, faux therapist named Dr. Rick, and he works with these new homeowners to help them to not become their parents. He does things like taking them to movie theaters to uh, learn to not balk at, at high prices at the concession stand or to not print pages from the internet to text instead of voicemail. Dr. Rick says dad jokes are sad jokes. <laughs> now my wife would agree with that but my mother-in-law and my daughter would beg to differ. My dad jokes are awesome. Um, and I'm grateful for their laughs. Um, but their tagline, in part, besides trying to sell you bundled car and homeowner's insurance, is that progressive can't help you from becoming like your parents. The situational irony that they're presenting is that, that becoming, somehow becoming like your parents decreases your wisdom and increases your social awkwardness, and yet in spite of our childhood resistance and our desire to perhaps differentiate ourselves from our parents, and there's some good reasons maybe to do that. In spite of all that, for better or worse, we become like our parents in many ways. Well, in our passage this morning, John presents the reader with a fundamental contrast between the children of God and the children of the devil. Well, if becoming like our parents is inevitable, then the important question for you and I, friends, is which parent are we emulating? But it's not really as simple as choosing the right role model, right? I mean, given the choice, I'm, most of us in this room, all of us in this room aren't choosing the devil. I believe if you've chosen the devil as your role model, you're not sitting in this room. Could be wrong, but probably not. But it's not simple. It's not simply choosing the right role model, right? Because in the same way that we struggle to be the children of our earthly parents, navigating expectations and personalities and all of the things, the relational dynamics in, in human families... We, we can likewise struggle to be the children of God. So much of our lifetime is spent trying to figure out what does that mean. Some of us think we have it figured out, and others still struggle along. Well, if the hope that we have in Christ purifies us, as John 
told us in verse 3 of our passage this morning, well, then how are we as those who are not without sin, as John has reminded us in chapter 1, how are we who are not without sin, but, but children of God, purified in Christ, how are we to truly walk in an intimate relationship with Christ? We, we hear this call to holiness. We're exhorted to holiness every time we pick up the Scriptures, every time we gather in the sanctuary, every time that we congregate with believers. But oftentimes it's very difficult, if we're being honest with ourselves, to truly comprehend our security before the Lord as a sinful people. How can we be reassured about our place before God and understand God's unyielding call for righteousness in such a way that our Christian walk does not become superficial or performative or even legalistic? Well, we're continuing this morning in our series through the letters of John, a series that we've entitled to uh, Love Without Fear. And as we look at our passage this morning, we're, we're focusing on, I want to focus on, two emphases that John presents us with for our transformation. Two things that he's emphasizing in this passage. The assurance of our salvation and the righteousness of our conduct that flows out of that assurance. In the previous passages, John is given a series of warnings about the world, but here he, he shifts in his cyclical way that he's written this letter to begin to exhort his readers, us as the hearers of this letter, to live as children of God and to do what is right. And just as physical likeness can become a proof of relationship with our earthly parents, John says that Likeness of our behavior is proof of the spiritual relationship with our Heavenly Father. As one of my seminary professors summarized it, our conduct is the clue to our paternity. But being a child is hard. Being an earthly child is hard. Being a spiritual child is hard. Parents have rules and expectations Families have reputations to uphold, for better or for worse. And the world is, is a confusing place, providing all sorts of mixed messages about what it means to, to be a human being, to be a member of humankind. Well, in the ten verses that precede today's passage, John lays out an important foundation for what he's saying here. He's saying Christian discipleship is intimately connected to the Holy Spirit. And that, friends, is the crux of my message this morning. To whatever degree of clarity I'm able to deliver it, our discipleship is intimately connected to the Holy Spirit. It's this reciprocal relationship that we can't live without. John tells us that the Spirit is Jesus himself returned to us in power in verse 20 of chapter 2. He says, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. This is central to how John is 
combating these false teachers that have infiltrated the church and are causing division and doubt, causing Christians to question their assurance, to question their understanding of their saving knowledge of Christ. He says, you have an anointing one from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. And the same is true for you and me. You see, John is reminding us that our assurance comes from the fact that the Holy Spirit lives in us. We've all been anointed by this Holy Spirit. But he also reminds the reader and us that our assurance doesn't come from some sort of special knowledge. You see, these opponents of these churches around Ephesus were claiming a a special secret hidden knowledge, somehow elevating themselves above the rest and causing them to question. He says, it doesn't come from special knowledge or experience. It comes from the word that you have heard. The scriptures, we have the scriptures, as he says in verse 24 in chapter 2, what we have heard from the beginning. In verse 27, he tells us that we reside in Christ and the anointing of the Spirit that we've received remains in us. And so, we are to remain in Him. Remaining in Christ in the power of the Spirit. Well, contrary to what is seemingly emphasized in modern-day discipleship, Christian life is not merely this cognitive or intellectual embrace of Christ. It's, if I were to critique my own discipleship as a, as a Christian, as a growing Christian, there was just so much of an emphasis on knowing things, memorizing things, being able to recite things, and, I, and those in and of themselves are not bad, but, but John reminds us that they're not the central thing. He tells us that the Christian life is intended to be an experience of Jesus in spirit. The knowledge that we have, friends, or that we accumulate, it's important. But the scriptures also tell us that it's what's in the heart that what reveals the true person. Our hearts, the scriptures tell us, are where God looks. God looks at the heart. We look at the outward appearance, we read in 1 Samuel, but God looks at the heart. Jesus tells the Pharisees that God knows their hearts. And our heart transformation, friends, it comes through engagement with Christ, through our encounters with Christ in the Spirit. Yet, Encountering Christ in the Spirit takes a a level of intentionality and attention that's often lacking and fraught with misunderstanding. I think we can tend to fall into two extremes. We can make it all about the Spirit in our worship, or we can ignore the Spirit and make it all about the information. Thomas Smale, a a leading Scottish theologian in the charismatic movement in the United Kingdom, makes a, a helpful comparison of the common errors in our belief about the Spirit. On the one hand, he says the charismatic errors by making the Spirit's blessing separate from Jesus. And on the other hand, the non charismatic errors when they explain the Christian experience of Christ without reference to the Spirit. 
Will our Christ and the Spirit two blessings or are they one? You may have heard the term second blessing. You may have heard people in your church experience talk about it. I've had people ask me, have you had the second blessing? It's understood two ways by Christians, but you've most likely encountered it as, as rooted in this Pentecostal doctrine of baptism in the Holy Spirit. Well, the phrase isn't found anywhere in the Bible. The Bible does speak often of the baptism of the Spirit as well as the sanctification of believers, but, but not in the context of a, of a second blessing or a second stage of the life of faith. Smale goes on to say, if we ask how many blessings are there, the New Testament answer is essentially one. God has given us his one gift of himself in his Son. And everything else is contained in him. To the church in Ephesus, Paul wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Smale goes on to say, However many and varied our spiritual experiences, they all have their unity and significance in the fact that they all proceed from him. They all reflect him, and they all glorify him. Christ is the center and unity of all that comes to us from God, and anything that does not derive ultimately from that center, whatever it is in terms of its experiential quality, is without Christian value or content. What does not flow out of Christ in your Christian experience is without value or content. Experiencing the Spirit must, must be an experience of Jesus. And experiencing Jesus must be an experience of the Spirit. John's told us we all have the Spirit. We know the truth. The question that I want to focus on as we think about this passage and how it applies to our life is, how are you and I abiding in that Spirit? In what manner do we set ourselves before the Spirit to be transformed by the abiding presence of Christ in you and me? In verse 28 of chapter 2, which is really where I think this passage begins for us this morning, John says, So now, little children, remain in him, that is Christ, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. This word, this Greek word that we translate in these passages as remain, and we see it frequently here this morning. It's an important concept in John's theology. Of the almost 200 occurrences of this word in the New Testament, over half of them occur in John's writings. The basic meaning is to remain or to continue, to, to stand firm, to wait on or to expect something. In the New Testament, it, it 
primarily brings this sense of a, of a psychological and spiritual abiding in the righteous condition of salvation as opposed to the human condition that is corruptible and, and passing away. John uses this statement, remain in him, abide in him, in these distinctive personal statements concerning the persistent involvement between God and Christ or Christians in Christ. To remain in Christ, friends, is to remain in our salvation. Jesus in John's Gospel, we read, he, he tells his disciples, he says, remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. What is it that enables us to know the truth? What is it that enables us to be assured of our salvation? It's the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's us abiding in the Spirit. What is it that enables us to endure the suffering that's ordained for us in this broken and fallen world? What is it that enables us to sacrificially love our neighbor and our enemy? What is it that enables us to do anything that brings glory to God? It's remaining or abiding in the vine that is Christ. And John tells us, remain in Him. Because why? Because remaining in Him is what enables us to do everything else he says in verse 29, he says, If you know that he is righteous, you know this as well. Everyone who does what is right has been born of him. So this mention of the rebirth that we have in Christ inspires John to reflect in praise on the splendor of God's love for us. In the first three verses of chapter 3, he says, See what great love the Father has given us, that we should be called God's children. And we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know Him. Dear friends, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when we, he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. In this passage, John is reorienting his reader and us as the hearers to the divine love and all that it has already accomplished in, and for God's people so that we can grasp just how radically different from all other sorts of love God's divine love really is. And until we grasp this love, friends, we can't love like Jesus loves. We can't love without fear. 
This first word in, in verse 1 of chapter 3 that is translated as see in our English translation, it, it comes off as too casual. It's actually, actually rather a, an exclamation. It's some translations say, behold. John's saying, look. Whenever I see this word behold in scripture, I imagine Jesus grabbing the face of a child and saying, listen to me. Listen to what I'm saying. And John's telling us the same thing. The force of this word gives the sense of something that we need to take notice of. Something of vital importance to pay attention to and to consider deeply. John's telling us to focus on something that we should be concerned with. He's saying, look. Look what great love the Father has given us. That we should be called God's children. And we are. And I'm yelling on purpose. John is asking us to take time to contemplate and allow the reality of the Father's love to sink down into the depths of our being. Because that's what transforms us. To abide. To remain. And this word that is translated as what, where he says, see what great love. In the Greek, it's a, it's a unique word. It's the the same word that the disciples used when they expressed surprise at Jesus quieting the storm on the Sea of Galilee. What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. It's a word that expresses surprise in encountering something that's foreign, something we're not used to, something that is so utterly alien to us. It evokes wonder. And awe. That, my friends, is the love of the God, God, our Father, who makes us his children. You see, his love for us is in a category completely different than anything we've come across before. It's a love that where he takes the initiative to make us his children, a love that, that gives lavishly and freely to those who are utterly undeserving. And he says in verse 2 that the love of God delights to change us into children who belong to God's family. Not only does he give us his name, John says we are called children of God, but he gives us his status, that, that we are his children, we've been adopted into his family. And because this love is unconditional and limitless and so alien to us as human beings, we can struggle to accept it. I mean, intellectually, we can say, yeah, God loves me, I'm his child, but, but many of us have never known a love like this in any other relationship. In our childhood, some of us have, have learned that the approval and love of our parents had to be earned. by conforming to rules and, and living up to expectations, and others of us simply have, have never known our parents as a result of divorce or disease or other family dysfunction. 
Some people have known a lifetime of struggle of whether they're loved by a parent, wanted by a parent, accepted by a parent. And when a child grows up not knowing whether they can ever be good enough or achieve enough or whether they were known and loved, then, then struggling with feelings of acceptance is, is part and parcel of so much of their life. And it's easy for us to transfer those same assumptions into our relationship with God. There are many Christians who at the level of their heart cannot accept this level of lavish love of God for them personally. They're, they're always trying to be good enough to persuade God to love them rather than accepting the fact that God already loves us. So we can find ourselves on a ceaseless treadmill of, of Christian activity trying to prove ourselves to ourselves and others that, that we're good enough to get a passing grade with God. We tie our acceptance to our effort and our sense of self-worth. And so I think it's, it's a useful question to reflect in our own lives on, on what circumstances have you found your assurance of the Father's love to falter. In my own life, experiencing divorce, I struggled with that for years until a pastor finally proclaimed the forgiveness that I intellectually understood over me in a way that it pierced my heart. You see, we need to stop our busy Christian lives from time to time and, and honestly assess how much of our activity is an expression of love for the Lord who loves us and how much of it comes from being driven along by our own fundamental insecurities or doubts. And John wants to remind us that our assurance begets our righteousness. We need to remind ourselves that it's our love relationship with the Father that matters the most. That who we are is far more important than what we do. Will we be judged as believers for the things that we've thought and done and said? Yes. But what matters most to God is the heart behind the things that we say and we do. Our security, John tells us, comes from realizing that our identity as God's dearly loved children depends not on our activity but on His grace. And more than anything, our loving Father wants us to be like Jesus. So when we have our assurance in Christ, when we're absolutely certain, when we're confident in who we are, that we can stand before Christ when He returns without shame, then the practical outworking of that is our behavior. And John mentions it in this, these verses. He says that the new relationship brought about by God's love for the new birth will show itself in the practical evidence of our righteous life. 
If all of our future expectation is centered on Christ, then, then we'll want to be as much like him as we can be now. If an eternity in the presence of Christ is the ultimate destination, then we also have to be traveling on that road in the here and now. And notice how carefully John rules out any exceptions to this. He says in verse 3, he says, And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. John says that if we have the hope of Christ in us, we're pure in God's eyes. Are we still struggling with sin? Yes. He's told us to chapters previously, right? If we say we're not without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But he wants to assure us that, that God is, is at work through the Spirit making us pure. John's stimulating us to live our lives differently. But friends, only God the Holy Spirit can make us holy. And this is God's will. But it requires our cooperation and, and our obedience. Because assurance begets our righteousness. Well, in the final seven verses of this passage, which I'm going to summarize by jumping to verse 10, John reflects on this tension between sin and perfection in, in the Christian life. And he does it by laying out of contrast between the children of two very different spiritual fathers. The children of God versus the children of the devil. He says this is, in verse 10, this is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. Whoever does not do what is right is not of God, especially the one who does not love his brother or sister. You see, our, our membership in God's family, our status as God's children is, is absolutely inseparable from love. The God who is the light of truth is the God of love. And we are called to bear His image, to grow in our Christ-likeness. Our love is, is, is our righteousness in relationship of others. It's, it's not primarily an emotion, but it's an act of our will. Love as simply a feeling is, is useless. No marriage can survive on feelings. No relationship can survive on feelings. It has to be expressed in, in caring and sharing and hard work and loyalty and generosity and long-suffering. If we don't live out our life in love in this way, we, we have no right to claim to be God's children. And it's a love that John tells us is superhuman. It's the, the soil of this world does not grow this type of love. It's the gift of God. And so the logical conclusion that John makes is that no one who is born of God and remains in him keeps on sinning. Will sin continue to be our struggle? Yes. But will it be something that we, we do out of the desires of our heart? 
John says, no. But such bold statements can make us struggle, right, as Christians, right? Does this mean that perfect holiness is God's expectation for me? Well, it's certainly God's desire. But we can dismiss the notion that, that, that John is saying that, that Christians are sinless, right? We've already covered that. What then are we to do about the devil's continuing activity in our own lives through the temptations of the world and our flesh? If the real test of our spirituality is the way that we behave, then it is Christ who enables us to live differently. This remaining in Him, abiding in Christ, this contemplation on the great love of the Father, this alien, unrecognizable love to us as human beings. It's the contemplation of those things and the abiding in Christ that is what truly transforms us. I'm more and more convinced that incorporating some form of contemplative posture and practice into our spiritual lives is the key to our spiritual transformation. It's an area of my own life that I struggle with. If you know me, you know I'm a busy person. My wife says I have no chill. It's a struggle. And I imagine it's a struggle for many of us that lead busy lives. Those of us who are parents, those of us who are employees, those of us who care for family members. But God is continually calling us to rest in Him. And so friends, I, I want to challenge us to think about what contemplative practice or posture that we can incorporate into our spiritual lives to be, that would enable us to behold what great love the Father has for us and to remain in Christ. Each of us needs to constantly orient our lives on truly abiding in Christ. John is urging us to take on Christ's perfect character. Even though it's an ideal that's beyond our reach. So friends, progressive insurance can't help you and I from becoming our parents. And for those in the family of God, that's really good news. We can't do it through human efforts. We can't do it through some program in the church. We can't do it by subscribing to some podcast, although all those things are helpful. We do it foremost by remaining in Him. Abiding in Christ begets our identity and our purity as children of God. So we should abide in Christ and be both assured and confident. And our assurance begets righteousness and as the children of God were empowered in the Spirit to overcome the temptation to sin and to freely love our neighbors and our enemies without fear. It's not easy. It's going to take work. But friends, I want to encourage all of us to, to grow 
in our posture and practice of, of contemplating God and placing ourselves before Him to be heart. Uh, transformed in our hearts. And so with the faith as children of God, may we abide in Christ with confidence that we're being made righteous to stand in judgment without shame. And so be freed to love the household of God and our neighbors with the self-giving and fearless love of Christ. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Well, Father, we're just so grateful for what a great incomprehensible love that you've given us. That you have, and that you call us children of God, Lord. And I pray that each of us could grow in our assurance that, that we are your children. Help us to continually look to Christ, to experience him in the Spirit. That we would grow confident in our assurance to stand before you without shame in the judgment and that as an outflowing of this, that we would behave righteously, that we would love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we would love our neighbors as ourselves, and that we could do it without fear of, of what we're going to lose or how we're going to be taken advantage of, but to know that as we walk this way as we live our lives this way, that the world will see you in us. Help us, Lord. And we pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Let us stand together.